Welcome to Climate Pulse, where each episode we discuss how climate disruption is impacting our health and well-being. My name is Trish Dalpati, and I am an MD, PhD candidate at Duke University School of Medicine. And my name is Brian McAdoo. I'm an associate professor of earth and climate sciences at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University. Today's guests are Drew Schindel, Nicholas Professor of Earth Science at Duke University, where he studies climate change, air quality, and the links between science and policy, and Dr. Fenton Hughes, anesthesiology resident at Duke University Hospital, who has the understated tagline on his Twitter account, climate change is a health emergency. Truth. (laughs) Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much. Great to be here. Thanks. Good to be here. Drew, can you tell us briefly what your day-to-day work looks like and perhaps a project you are working on that you're excited about? Sure. I mean, my work is essentially all involving computer models, and we extract a lot of data from ground-based networks and satellites and try to understand what's going on with the climate system and how humans are causing change. One of the things that we've been working on lately that I think is really interesting and has me excited at least is looking at urban heat islands. And we know that some neighborhoods within cities, typically with low tree cover and high areas of impermeable ground cover, are much hotter than other neighborhoods. Um, And yet we don't know for sure exactly what that does to our well-being. Because when we look, say, across the country, you know, if you have a, a series of 110 degree days in Phoenix, hardly anything happens. But if you have those same days in Chicago, a lot of people would probably die from that kind of heat wave. So we know that there's a balance between acclimatization and urban heat island. And right now, my students and I are trying to tease that apart. And we also know that um, there's a history of what they call redlining in neighborhoods where the Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation back in the 1930s, 1940s, I believe, kind of outlined areas that were owned by black and minority-owned majority-owned um, homes and whatnot, and systematically disinvested in those neighborhoods. And I think we still see those effects today. We still see that there's a very high correlation between areas with elevated urban heat island and low socioeconomic status, definitely. Extraordinary. And Fenton, what exactly does a resident in anesthesiology do every day? And how does, how does research fit into your, no doubt, busy everyday schedule? Yeah, uh, it's quite a variable day and variable day-to-day. Uh, from one week to another. Um, The majority of our time we spend in the operating rooms um, with patients anywhere from healthy people getting knee surgery to, you know, newborn babies having general surgery or say tonight I'm on liver transplant call. So if somebody needs a liver transplant, I'll be up all night doing that. Um, I've just come back from a month in Ghana where we were setting up epidural services in a new hospital. Um, and then I'm in a lucky position where this year I have some um, protected research time. And so I spend half of my time, say, in the ORs and then the rest of my time um, doing research largely into climate science. You mentioned epidurals in Ghana. Is that something associated with pregnancy, am I right? Or is that just in general? Yes, yeah, sorry. So um, we were you know, working on a project that improves um, improves maternal safety around childbirth. Um, but you're right, um, epidurals have a lot of applications and we were, while both setting it up for maternal services, also teaching people how to do epidurals for general operating cases too. Got it, got it. So Fintan, I, I got to ask, um, other than the obvious fact that you're a human being on the planet Earth living in a rapidly changing environment, why does an anesthesiologist care about climate change? Yeah, so we're, we're famously nerdy. Um, and the whole backbone of what we do day to day 
apart from the uh, initial facade of putting people to sleep and waking them up again, is once somebody is um, undergoing surgery, the main thing that we rely on, the main science that we rely on to um, sort of conceptualize what's going on with the patient is physiology. Um, and so essentially we are experts in human physiology during strange stresses. Um, and I think where the rubber hits the road in climate change and climate change and health is where environmental stresses begin to impact human physiology. Can you expand on that a little bit and, and give us an idea of some examples of how changes in climate could be impacting the physiology that you're seeing and how that could impact your ability to deliver anesthetics so that you can put people to sleep and, and ideally wake them up? Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose that there's, there's two sides to that. One is the how does the environment affect somebody's physiology? Um, and that can be, and we'll go into this in, in lots of detail later, I'm sure, um, but things like how the temperature affects somebody's um, somebody's blood volume, somebody's organ functions, um, how air pollution can, infect, can affect heart and lung function um, at a moment-to-moment basis, um, but then just generally as the climate destabilizes and the human ecosystem uh, uh, worsens, um, we end up with sicker patients with worsening chronic diseases coming right. in for surgery, and that just gives a an overall sicker population. The, the sicker somebody is starting off, uh, the more problems they have with their organ systems to start with, the less resilient they are, the less able they are to get through surgery safely. Okay. Got it. Now let's flip the script. Drew, how did a climate scientist get involved with health outcomes? Well, that's a good question, Trisha. And uh, I, you know, I've spent many years now working on climate modeling um, and climate projections. And, and one of the main reasons that I'm so interested in this is because after a long period of bringing our projections and the, the physical system changes to the public and policymakers, you know, I've realized that that tends to promote agreement but not action. And you tell people, you know, the planet's warming. It's going to get a degree warmer if we don't take action and there will be more floods and there will be ice melt and sea level rise. And they say, oh, yes, good. Um, but really, that's that's now number seven on my priority list because I'm really worried about jobs and the economy and health. And so the first time that we were able to do some health analyses and really get to these kind of impacts, I just saw how much this resonated with people. And, you know, it's frustrating to, to warn people about the dangers of climate change and have them really fail to act on it, which is unfortunately what we've seen for the past several decades. Um, so I, I am really interested in health as a way to motivate us actually tackling the climate crisis. If I can follow up on that, Drew, if I remember correctly, you spent maybe about 20 years at NASA before coming to Duke. Yes. In your work at NASA, were you able to do any kind of policy work or think about health or was it purely the climate modeling? Well, I, NASA's mandate from the federal government is to really look at physical science, and, and NASA is brilliant at that, and, and really we, we still rely on all, of, all kinds of NASA satellite data in particular to understand what the climate system is doing and to test and refine our models. I was called several times as a NASA scientist to testify before Congress, and I brought the data that we had on things like health impacts. Um, but that wasn't always really considered the, the appropriate thing to do, uh, as that's not really NASA's mission, right? And, and could even be construed as, as changing 
priorities that Congress has given where they've given budgets to different federal agencies to work on different things. So that's one of the reasons that I, I came to Duke where, where this was kind of the, the bread and butter of a university to work across disciplines like this. Fantastic. Well, we're, we're glad you're here. Okay, let, let's get to work now. Um, anthropogenic climate change caused by humans burning fossil fuels is adding tons of carbon dioxide and other gases to the atmosphere, which has changed both the short-term weather events and the long-term climate on scales from hundreds of years, even up to eons, perhaps. Summers are hotter, storms are getting more powerful, and the glaciers that have been around for you know, thousands of years are disappearing rapidly. Drew, can you outline some specific examples you've seen in your work um, of how the climate is changing in ways that's actually making us sicker? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, one of the things that, going back to the previous question, you tell people that climate is warming by a degree and they think, oh, it doesn't sound like very much at all, right? But what happens is the entire probability distribution, the entire variability of extreme temperatures around what the average is has all shifted to hotter temperatures so the, as well. the tail ends are getting longer. Exactly. So the tail end of what used to happen, you know, say 5% of the time, that can increase much more quickly as the entire distribution shifts to warmer temperatures than the mean. And that's really what we're seeing, this huge rise in what used to be extreme temperatures now becoming instead of, say, one-fifth of the time, one-third of the time, and temperatures that never or, or were you know, less than 1% of the time now happening with some regularity. And, and we know that extreme t warm temperatures kill people. Right? There's, there's actually often confusion about how much, how many people they kill because official government statistics often report only those deaths from things like hypothermia and heat exposure. Mm. But in fact, it's far larger. They, they really exacerbate your risk of dying from pre-existing conditions like cardiovascular illness. And we see that very clearly in, in data that, that shows that extreme heat, for example, in the United States or Europe can kill tens of thousands of people per year, even if only hundreds to 1,000 show up on death certificates. So we know that extreme heat is killing people. Cold is, is a harder one because when you look at um, the epidemiological data, right, there are more people die during the coldest part of the year, but you also tend to have, you know, seasonal cycles and things like respiratory mm -hmm. infections, which correlate with cold temperatures. And so it's hard to tease those apart and figure out how much is actually cold. And if you think about it, typically, you know, I mentioned the example before, if it's 110 in Chicago and there's a terrible heat wave, lots of people die. And it's very clear that a three-day heat wave caused excess mortality in the next three days. If you have a, a sudden cold snap, typically there's not such a big signal. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you look at people dying from ex cold exposure, it's typically in the wintertime, it's because they've gotten wet. And so the idea is that people fall in the water. And when they fall in the water, when it's really cold, they die. But often it's because, you know, they've been drinking or something like that. And, and so in some examples, or one example of that is that you often have greater cold-related mortality in southern states than you do in northern ones, even though it's much colder up north. One of the other ways that climate is affecting our health, though, is changing not just the distribution of temperatures, but the distribution of rainfall. Right. And rainfall tends to come, it's both shifting in its geographical um, distribution, but it's also tending to come in more extreme 
periods of heavy rain and then longer intervals between rain. And that can both directly impact people, of course, but also the combination of having extreme in both end of rainfall combined with heat can really affect crop yields. And in, in the United States, we have very efficient systems for agriculture and for tr uh, transportation of goods, of, of sorry, transportation of foods. Mm -hmm. But in many lower latitude countries, there's, there's really growing pressure on food systems. Because you're more reliant on the local system there to get your food. That's right. But and also, with, even with um, rain stress or precipitation stress in the United States, we can see increasing food prices, which can affect lower income populations because they just can't afford the fresh food, fresh vegetables, even fresh meats because the prices are going up because there's just more strain on the system. That's very true. And, you know, it is a global system in many ways. And so we even see that, you know, there, there were uh, droughts in, in Russia back in around 2010. Mm -hmm. And they really depressed the availability or the productivity of the Russian wheat crop, which then reduced their exports and prices spiked around the world. And uh, many people have linked things like that to, say, the Arab Spring. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So, Drew, you know I'm a disaster researcher. I got into this work after the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean um, that killed upwards of a quarter of a million people. So you mentioned these heat waves that, that hit in northern latitudes are really quite extraordinary. And I remember hearing um, in, the, in the media last summer that something like 65,000 deaths in northern Europe were attributed to the heat wave that happened in 2022. Uh, so I, I think you're absolutely right on those, and the numbers are absolutely staggering, but yet we don't consider that um, a disaster on the same magnitude as we would a big earthquake or tsunami because the, the visuals often aren't quite as, as dramatic. But when it comes to, to disasters, I have to ask some questions about the more um, dramatic climate-related hazards that we see out there. Um, in the United States, for example, I believe the majority of people that, that die in flooding events um, a result of driving through flooded areas and oftentimes in big SUVs and that kind of thing. Are you aware of any trends on how these more powerful and damaging storms are impacting people's health and well-being? Yeah, well, you, you make a really good point, Brian, I'm, about something like heat is that it's, it's sort of a, a, a good example of climate change in general. It's a broad, slow-moving thing, and it's hard for people to see, right? And so we, I, we call that a slow-onset disaster in my world. It, okay, perfect. That's a, that's a good way to, to phrase it. Um, so I think those are likely to be the most serious effects and the most, most profound in total numbers, but they're hard for people to deal with. Right? Uh, hard for people to really recognize appropriately. Mm -hmm. So I think with one of the things we're seeing with storms is, is hurricanes. And in the Atlantic, the storms that come to the southeastern United States, right, we don't necessarily see an overall trend in the number of storms. But when we do get storms, they are more powerful. And so they are likely to become stronger we see a, a clear increase in, in the number of very strong storms. And in particular, they hold a lot more water. Right. So when they, and they move slowly. And then when they come ashore, they just dump enormous amounts of rainfall. Uh, and that can really, really damage you know, infrastructure, but also affect people's health. People can get swept away. Also, it can damage hospital systems, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at places like North Carolina, uh, along the coast, many of the hospitals in a city like Bull. Wilmington are located very close to sea level and 
easily flooded in, in hurricanes, and we've seen that in the past. We noticed that after the big windstorm that happened in Durham a couple months ago, the majority of calls to EMS and emergency room visits had to do with people whose um, home medical care equipment was no longer supported by electricity when the power went out. So they had to call EMS for things like help with CPAP machines or with keeping their insulin cold and things like that. Um, Finton, in, in your work, have you seen any kind of um, acute impacts of disasters like big storms come through, and how does that impact your, your work? Um, impacted my work in that the last storm that came through ended up kicking me out of my house because a uh, um, tree fell on my house, broke through the door, broke through the walls, and um, set off the gas line. We, we tend to forget that healthcare workers are also people that have lives out yeah, there. So, so that, that yeah. affected my ability to work. Um, but yeah, so I, I did... My, one of my initial um, entries into uh, climate change research and health was looking at the 2017 um, hurricane season in the Caribbean, um, where there was scores of, you know, there was essentially three or four category four and five hurricanes that hit the Caribbean um, consecutively. Um, each of those knocking out um, healthcare systems, knocking out power generation for uh, four hospitals, um, disroving hospitals, um, and leaving, I think, some in the region of 90% of the hospitals through the Caribbean functioning at a lower capacity. Um, the, you know, we talk about increasing power in these storms. Roughly speaking, for every one degree Celsius of warming, there's an increase in 7% of the actual um, energy, in the, energy in the atmosphere to power these storms. And you start, like we just saw, developing these Mediterranean hurricanes or medicanes, um, Storm Daniel, um, you know, most recently hitting Libya and killing, say, 4,000, and there's another 9,000 missing. So that has massive impacts on, say, trauma care that you'd see as people, mostly sort of crush injuries, um, penetrating traumas, and mm -hmm. then people who are lost. So when we talk about non-communicable diseases, um, generally, how do, how do you as a, as a healthcare provider think about this definition of non-communicable disease that also include injuries, for example. Yeah. So, um, in terms of how health impacts or how how heat impacts health, um, you can split, roughly speaking, into yeah, communicable, communicable as in infectious diseases, say malaria, uh, and non-communicable, which typically have referred to chronic diseases, say chronic kidney disease, um, exacerbations of existing, say heart disease. Um, but I think in this context, we think more of anything that's anything, even the, the acute effects as well, so injuries. Uh, I typically tend to break up the health impacts of climate change into three rough categories. One being just the direct physiologic effect of living in a warmer atmosphere. Say so, um, if you take the, the example of a heat wave, you have issues of dehydration, which increase, say, um, incidence of acute kidney injuries. Um, and then you also have the picture of um, you know increased increased perspiration and sweat as people try to stay cool, leading to reductions in blood volume. Mm -hmm. so the heart pumps harder. Right. People who have existing heart disease, narrowing of the blood vessels around the heart, um, aren't able to keep up with the blood supply needed to the heart, and that can precipitate myocardial infarctions, so heart attacks, and worsening and decompensation of existing heart failure. Mm -hmm. um, and then in its most extreme, you get um, direct impacts on the brain, not just from uh, reduced blood supply, but the direct impact of the heat on the brain. So 
Um, all of the bio our biological systems are a series of proteins and enzymes, and they respond quite poorly to uh, to heat. The proteins will denature, the enzymes mm. will increase in their speed, and that can cause increased cell breakdown. And this seems to be quite sensitive. The cerebellum and the limbic system of the brain seem to be quite sensitive to heat-related impacts. Do these tend to happen when you, your body starts overheating, if, you're, if your thermoregulatory systems start failing or over overstressed over yeah. or is it kind of just when it gets really hot outside it is typically once your ability to cool yourself decompensates um, and so we're seeing both a combination of increased hot days but also increased wet bulb temperatures so increasing what's wet bulb temperature please yeah so it's um it i guess um colloquially referred to i suppose as a heat index essentially a combination of high humidity and um, high ambient temperatures. So it reduces your body's ability to cool off by perspiration. Um, mm -hmm. you, know, you rely on the latent heat of evaporation when sweat evaporates off your skin. If it's so humid that there's no essentially incentive for the sweat to leave your skin, then uh, you'll be unable to cool yourself. Um, similarly, um, if you don't have the means of accessing water yourself, um, there's a limit by which a limit beyond which the body can't continue to produce sweat once you've run out of uh, circulating blood volume to do that. Uh, and yeah, so once the core temperature gets you know, above 39, above 40 degrees Celsius, it's when you start to get neuronal injury. Uh, and 37 degrees Celsius is approximately, 37 and a half degrees is approximately body yeah, temperature? Yes, I mean, it varies from sort of 36 to 37.5. Okay. Um, but yeah, above 100 Fahrenheit being okay. problematic. So, Fintan, can you summarize those three buckets for our listeners? That yeah, you sure. Um, so we touched there on the physiology aspects of what, what the environment does when you're in a, or what the body does, what the, how your physiology responds to mm -hmm. a hotter environment. Um, the second bucket I think of then are what are the results of being in a world that is hotter. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where I start to think about injuries. Mm -hmm. um, so we have these increases in storms, um, you have reduced food production, mm -hmm. um, the food that is produced has lower nutritional content. Then, um, like Drew said, changes in um, rain patterns, which will um, both drive migration and drive um, displacement. Um, and then the third bucket being what is the essentially the the, the migrant health effect of, of climate change. So we know that you know various models say that by say 2070, 2080, mm -hmm. the number of um, or the, the amount of global surface area that will be above about 27 degrees mean temperature um, will increase from about 0.8 percent to possibly 30, 40 percent. Um, essentially meaning that about 3.5, 4 billion people will be in areas that have mean temperatures that are normally currently just experienced in the Sahara. So there is an enormous amount of um, climate-forced migration coming mm -hmm. down the road. And so all of the negative health impacts that come with being displaced, um, moving away from your home, your food sources, and then losing access to healthcare as a result. Got it. I just want to put a fine point on this. So the, the, we're talking about going between Fahrenheit and Celsius. You're saying that if we large swaths of the world would be around 27 degrees Celsius, which is approximately... Uh, 80. 
80 degrees. So how mean temperatures of ice. And that's the mean temperature we see in a place like the Sahara. Yes. So when Drew is also talking about how these averages and these changes in mean temperature, really it's the tail ends we're concerned about. That's something that's, that's really brings it home to think that so much of these big swaths of the world, three to four billion people will be living in a Sahara-like climate. And probably a Sahara-like climate, which is going to have higher humidity because yeah. it's not necessarily arid like the Sahara, but more humid-like places in, in um, South Asia and, and East Asia. Exactly. And what we know is that people don't stay in these, in these environments. They won't be living. There will be three, four billion people will have migrated from these areas. They'll have no choice but to. Yeah, exactly. Another thing we're seeing, I think, Drew, your research might be showing this also, is that um, while daytime temperatures are increasing, nighttime temperatures are increasing faster. Could you comment on that? Yeah, that's true. And that's really something, you know, the human body can withstand some high temperatures for a short period of time, but you really need that nighttime respite to, to recover. And in, in many parts of the world, especially around the Persian Gulf and parts of South Asia, we're really seeing the nighttime temperatures soar so that you, you get records even during the night where it's over 100 Fahrenheit. Wow. Right? It, doesn't give you, it doesn't give you any relief really during the nighttime. Our research is also showing that the same thing's happening here in North Carolina, where the daytime temperatures, high temperatures are certainly, certainly increasing, but our nighttime temperatures are increasing faster. And that's, that's very terrifying. We think about people who don't have that refuge that you mentioned, especially people who work outside, a lot of our laborers who are either doing agricultural labor or construction work and don't necessarily have the, the economic resources to afford air conditioning or the high quality housing where it can be insulated well and air conditioned. And, in, and that's another area where, where poor neighborhoods in, in different cities tend to have it worse because, you know, if you absorb all this heat during the, during the day into dark pavement rather than having, you know, lakes and grass and trees, that comes back at night and that can really exacerbate. You know, the heat island effect could be even stronger at night than day. Drew, I have another question for you. I, I believe you're doing some research on how heat is impacting um, labor productivity around the world. Can I ask you to comment on that also, please? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you'd think many people, I, I think, have this idea that maybe heat exposure isn't such a bad thing because we can just all have air conditioning and, and it'll be OK. Um, and as far as workers go, you know, that's true for many office workers, provided, you know, there isn't a severe storm which knocks out the power, for example, like happened to Finton's house. Uh, mine as well during this last storm here in Durham. We lost power for a couple of days and you realize how much you depend on that air conditioning. Right? But then you think of workers that are out in either agricultural settings, uh, forestry, fisheries, or construction, and there's just no conceivable way to, to air condition this. And so those workers really, you know, you can try to shift the hours that you're working and that's already been, you know, it's longstanding practice. For some places, people will get up early in the morning to try to pick crops before it's too hot, right? But as we were just talking about, if the nighttime temperatures are warming faster than the daytime, then your ability to adapt to warmer temperature by shifting the work hours also diminishes over time. And some areas are seeing such extreme increases in temperature that you know, we, have, we have data showing that the losses for construction and agriculture sectors alone, and there are, there are effects too in things like manufacturing and trucking and such, um, but just in those two sectors can, can be up in the tens to hundreds of billions of dollars um, if we don't deal with climate change. Tens to hundreds of billions of dollars of annual loss globally? Yes, annual. Wow, that's extraordinary. 
I have a follow-up question for you, Fintan. Um, I know you're from Ireland and have worked internationally on climate change issues. Can you tell us about some specific changes and some challenges that have been taking place on a global scale? Yeah, so I think to to my eyes, the main challenge internationally is just a complete lack of genuine political um, motivation to actually address climate change in a meaningful way. Um, so we had the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, which mm-hmm. was hailed as a massive success and a massive breakthrough in climate negotiations, and everyone was sure that this problem was essentially fixed. Um, and since then, um, you know, we're eight, near eight years on from that, um, emissions have continued to increase and continue to increase year on year. Since then, um, global temperatures have now, you know, for several months this year, surpassed the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming limit that was set at the 2015 uh, agreement. Um, the U.S. continues, uh, the U.S. current administration has approved 6,000 or so oil and gas drilling permits on national lands um, over the last two years. The U.K. has rolled back its date by which it was going to phase out um, internal combustion engine cars. Germany has reinstated coal-fired power, coal power plants. Um, so despite all of everything that's been said and done in the name of sustainability, things are continuing to go in the wrong direction. Um, we know that we have a, about, you know, th- there's a, this massive gap, um, what the UN refers to as the emissions gap, the, the difference between what's the pathway that's needed to um, limit warming to 1.5 degrees and the current emissions pathway that we're, we're actually on. Um, currently we're, you know, Drew, you may correct me, but maybe heading towards 2.7 to 3.3 Celsius of warming on the current emissions pathway, which would be, you know, the amount of global catastrophe we're seeing currently as a result of climate change is coming from maybe 1.2 to 1.5 degrees. Um, and the the rate at which the energy is, the, the earth is gaining energy has doubled since 2005. So in the context of this, it's pretty horrifying that internationally there isn't a larger move to actually address this. Um, the the level of certainty that people had that this was going to be taken care of um, politically has now been shown to be essentially false. Um, and it's not going to be addressed by uh, corporate interests. And so essentially it lands it on our feet to try to do something about this. Mm-hmm. Can, can I follow up on that? Um, when you're thinking about how different countries and how they have nationalized healthcare systems or more functioning healthcare systems um, versus the United States model, where I think, correct me if I'm wrong, we spend a lot of um, extra resources on research and development to really develop a lot of techniques that are used in other places. Can you speak a little bit to how different healthcare systems around the world are better positioned to respond to some of the climate changes we're seeing versus others? Yeah. Um, and I suppose there's two sides to this, one being um, how a system is equipped to deal with um, emergencies as they arise um, and then how healthcare systems are able to adapt and become more sustainable. Um, The former, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that other countries have more robust abilities to deal with um, healthcare emergencies as they arise. Um, The US does have obviously an enormous amount of healthcare expertise and, um, and resources, albeit you know, maybe at four or five times the cost that it would be in the rest of the world. Um, and maybe 
you know, in a, in a country like the UK that has a nationalized health service, um, care can be coordinated um, across the country in the scale of, um, in the instances of uh, mass casualty events, perhaps slightly better. Um, but I think where other countries are demonstrating um, prowess is in their ability to adapt their healthcare systems to reduce their emissions. Um, so say the, the NHS, and the National Health Service in the UK, um, has set 2045 as a target to um, become carbon neutral and crucially, they're also requiring that um, each of their suppliers will meet those same ambitions by 2030. Um, and actually, increasingly in the US, now there's been a move, um, uh, Department of Health and Human Services has a, uh, a pledge that 800 or so hospitals have signed on onto, um, aiming to address this, this waste um, in the, like, think of this as scope three emissions. I find that really interesting because I moved here a couple of years ago from Southeast Asia, and I was really surprised there to see how infectious disease is really going down quite rapidly over the last 20 or 30 years because of one, growing economies, but two, exactly as you say, the ability of nationalized healthcare systems to coordinate efforts throughout a whole country to distribute some things like simple antibiotics that can cure some of these infections like tuberculosis and the like. Um, Drew, I know you also do a lot of work internationally and you work with different international organizations like I believe the UN and other organizations. Um, do you feel like these, the work you're doing, the kind of climate modeling and the science you're bringing to the table is actually influencing any policy at this international level? Well, we're certainly trying. And, you know, as, as Finton was very correctly pointing out, we're not where we should be. But one of the things that we have had success with is, is really quantifying to people what the health benefits are from getting off of fossil fuels because the fossil fuels are not only the main source of CO2 that's causing climate change, but they're also the main source of air pollution. And so what we have, have really d done is try to put together a story of how phasing out fossil fuels gives you benefits over the very long term from avoided climate change, but it also gives you benefits right away from improved air quality. And by quantifying these kind of co-win-wins, right, you get people care a lot about the near term and typically much more than the long term. Can I ask you a question on this real sure. quick, interrupt you? So when you talk about quantifying, you talk about in terms of um, improved health outcomes or cost savings? Or both? Well, both really. And, and actually, I'm glad you raised that because that's one of the really kind of cool things about many of the strategies we've been proposing are that they lead to both cost savings and they lead to public health benefits, right? And so that's one of the areas where uh, I think we have had some success. We have a group called the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, which was formed about a decade ago and now consists of more than 70 countries really trying to tackle these things simultaneously. And in, in fact, just this week, we released a report with the International Energy Agency of trying to build to the forthcoming climate talks in December and showing that controls of methane, which is the second most powerful greenhouse gas, would provide really clear benefits in reducing the rate of warming in the near term, but also provide public health benefits. And the first thing that I saw in the news picked up was, hey, this climate thing can really prevent lots of premature deaths associated with air pollution. Air pollution seems like a big deal. And we're going to talk more about that with our colleagues from environmental toxicology um, in a future episode. Um, one question I do want to ask also, in pushing back a little bit, perhaps playing devil's advocate, I mean, over the last 
I don't know, 100, 150 years, hydrocarbons and use of fossil fuels provide us extraordinary gains in, in human development. And when I go to the hospital, I'm really glad that that hospital is extremely cold and air-conditioned and sterile. We've got nice disposable plastic things that keep things clean, and you use something once and then throw it away, you know, so less likely to get a staph infection or something like that. And I could ask either one of you to answer this and opine on it, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we have this kind of um, use of resources to make sure that I stay alive. Fintan, can you comment on that perhaps? Yeah. Um, so I guess I suppose you can split it into the things that you do need to keep somebody safe, um, the things that are superfluous, and the things that you actually do need, whether that needs to come from fossil fuels. So in order to in order to, to supply your hospital with electricity, do you need to run a coal-fired power plant beside the hospital and feed it electricity? Or can you use, say, um, like the university has done and like a lot of health systems around the world have done, a lot of large corporations, um, buy energy bonds um, and private power purchasing agreements that will facilitate the development of renewables that will then power the hospitals? Um, Things like single-use plastics are useful and they reduce the burden on in-hospital sterilization of products. Um, a lot of this is increasingly being shown to be completely unnecessary. Um, we are perfectly capable of sterilizing um, sterilizing metal instruments um, and the upshot of a lot of this is that we throw away and don't reuse a lot of um, extremely carbon-intensive items. So, for example, at the hospital we have an item that we use commonly, uh, we refer to as a laryngoscope, it allows us to manipulate the airway. Um, this has a fiber optic um, wand with a light at the end of it and it's battery powered. These are made uh, entirely of plastic, minus the batteries, and they're all thrown away afterwards in our single use. Um, so each time we are mining cobalt and lithium that go into the batteries, which could far better be used in electric cars, and then they're getting thrown out after each use. Um, so I think it's important to split apart what's actually necessary for health, what's a something that's been seen as nice to have, and then the things that are actually necessary, the electricity supplies, how can how can we adjust things to actually move away from fossil fuels? And actually, one other point I'd add to that, in moving away from fossil fuels and moving our hospitals and our healthcare systems onto renewables, if you think about the actual scale of the healthcare industry globally, it's about three. It has about three times the market value of the fossil fuel industry, and so the economic signal that would be sent by the entire healthcare industry moving from fossil fuels to renewables as its power source would have a few impacts. One, it would reduce the carbon emissions of the healthcare system, but doing that alone will have probably little to no impact on um, global warming trajectories. But it would also send an extremely powerful signal to hedge funds and investors generally that this incredibly important and influential industry are all at once getting out of fossil fuels into green power and non-polluting industries and would massively turbocharge their growth and potentially crash the fossil fuel industry. So, Fintan, um, you know, you're mentioning a lot of things that the United States healthcare sector is doing that probably contributes to the 10% of, you know, national greenhouse gas emissions that we know healthcare sector is contributing to. Um, and we also know that this um, contribution is leading to around 100,000 deaths annually. Um, you mentioned some of the things that anesthesiologists contribute to that might be contributing to climate change. Um, can you tell us about things outside of anesthesiology that the healthcare sector could be doing 
united to kind of mitigate the effects of climate change? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll just start with, the, I suppose, the what we can think of as probably the th- three most effective things that can be done, which is what, incidentally, what the uh, Department of Health and Human Services have highlighted. Um, predominantly, we need to be reducing our um, hospitals' reliance on fossil fuels, transitioning to uh, renewable um, power as their energy source. Um, we know that 70% of healthcare emissions come from the supply chain. And so anesthesiology, just like any other field, is a symptom of a global polluting industry. Um, and so insofar as we can reduce the emissions from our hospitals and healthcare itself, what's far more effective is if we can hold our suppliers accountable as mm-hmm. well. Um, in the same way as, say, the packaging for our medications may be um, sourced from one company, that same company may be providing packaging for a whole series of non-medical products. And so medicine is in, in an extremely powerful position based off its, the size of the industry to essentially force the hand of all upstream industries to decarbonize at the same speed and essentially to move, um, it's all essentially about moving money from um, polluting into non-polluting industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then appointing people within those healthcare, within those healthcare systems to um, jump in these efforts specifically rather than having relying on individual staff to do it. Right. Yeah, I, I didn't fully appreciate how much the global healthcare system contributes to this climate change problem and also the impacts, as Tricia mentioned, that I didn't know that uh, almost 100,000 deaths annually can be contributed to the carbon that's being produced by the healthcare system just here in the United States, which mm-hmm. is simply extraordinary. Um, Drew, you having spent more than 20 years at NASA, I think you're you know, quite uniquely positioned to suggest mitigation methods or solutions to reduce the amount of chemicals in our atmosphere that are impacting the weather and our climate. Um, is there any low-hanging fruit out there that we can think of as far as reducing the amount of chemicals we have in our environment that is an actual rocket science? Yeah, I think there really is, and, and that's sort of an, a hopeful situation. You know, you mentioned this idea of, of appreciating all of the modern technology you get in a hospital, right? Of course, who doesn't, right? What's wonderful about almost all the solutions that have been identified to deal with climate change is we can have not just the same service we have before, but we can actually have a a better service than we had before. So renewable power has now become substantially cheaper than the cheapest fossil fuel power you could possibly get, which means especially for those who have a hard time paying their energy bills, the future really looks good for them. The second one, Motor, motor vehicles, right? Electric vehicles cost less over the, to the consumer over the lifetime, and they're far less of a headache, right? They have very little maintenance. One of the reasons dealers might not like them, but for your average consumer, that is a great thing not to have to take your car into the repair shop all the time. So not, not even counting that, you know, fossil fuels produce enough air pollution to kill around 5 million people a year around the world, wow. right? That all goes away. At the same time, it's not just outdoor air pollution, but things like switching. You, you need to electrify everything and provide that electricity cleanly. And switching from, say, a gas stove to an electric stove in your kitchen not only is good for the climate, but it's good for your indoor air quality because the more people study things like what comes out of gas stoves, you know, most, most of that is methane, but there's also benzene and other hazardous air pollutants. We, we just got an induction cooker for our kitchen, which I absolutely love. 
Wonderful. I think that was a good move, and I, I think that's really what everybody needs to do. So we know what to do, and methane is another one. We can also control the leaks from it in fossil fuel systems. That's what we've been, we've been working on. But there, there are many other examples, for example, controlling methane from landfills, and that can provide a source of power, especially in developing countries where the grid might not be so great. That can pay for the landfill cover. That can reduce climate damages from the methane that would come out otherwise. It can reduce noxious pollutants that, that affect neighbors that live nearby. Same thing with manure. Um, all of these things while at the same time providing a power source in places that often don't have it. So there's a lot of ways we come out ahead and the resistance typically comes from the status quo, those who are making a lot of money off of the fossil fuel system. But for people, citizens as a whole in countries all around the world, we come out far ahead as we transition to clean energy and low climate footprint. And Fintan, your work has been especially inspiring to me, and I'm sure it will be to a number of other health professional trainees, because you've been learning and contributing to these efforts surrounding climate change, even during residency. Um, and we know that residency is one of the most grueling times during medical training. How have you done it? And can you share some tips with trainees who are interested in staying or getting involved? Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I credit all of my uh, all of my movement in this space to um, excellent mentors along the way, people who have sort of taken me under their wing and allowed this medical student come resident to play in the climate change and uh, atmospheric science space um, as a dedicated non-expert. Um, I think the the advice I have is uh, to to work on things that you're passionate about and. Um, ask other people for help when it, whether it be about scheduling or lending expertise and don't be afraid to cold email people that you think might be fun to work with um, and uh, see if you get a response. So Fintan, I saw you catch a look with Drew. Are you guys collaborating on a project right now and could you describe that please? Yeah, um, so Drew and I are working on uh, a project called WISER, uh, so wildfire smoke exposure response. Um, the idea being we're uh, analyzing a whole series of data from Brazil, uh, the continental US, and Southeast Asia, combining um, some amazing climate modeling with health outcomes data, looking at um, what, what the effect of wildfire smoke exposure is on um, people from, say, uh, people with heart conditions, lung disease, to um, pregnant patients and uh, newborn children. Have you had any preliminary results you would care to share with us? Nothing impressive. <laughs> um, nope. Could come up with a better answer for that. Um, so, so yeah, some very early signals uh, in our preliminary data show that there are there are trends towards um, increased cardiac morbidity, um, increased preterm birth, um, and lower birth weight. But um, stay tuned; we'll, we'll get much more impressive results as, as we go forwards. I was actually living in Singapore during the 2013. El Nino event where we had a very um, hardcore pollution event that hit Singapore. And a study that came out from that one predicted thousands of excess deaths across Southeast Asia, including Singapore. And I'm here to tell you the Singapore government did not appreciate that because they take pride in their healthcare system and their response to disasters like that. So I'll be very curious to learn about what you learned from your study. Well, and as places improve their air quality by reducing emissions from things like power plants and industry and motor vehicles, as wildfires increase due to climate change, it becomes a more and more part of the more and more important part of the total burden. So it is important to figure out how it affects people's health. 
Thank you both for offering us some hope. With all due respect to my co-host and guests, as a young person facing a longer future on this planet, I appreciate seeing some rays of hope in both climate mitigation efforts and in the medical profession. Join us next time on Climate Pulse, where we'll be talking with Bill Pan and Chris Woods on infectious diseases and climate change. Oh,